So, let's get, let's get started. Um, we're going to have you turn to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 tonight. We're going to take a couple Wednesdays for this. But before we look in the Word specifically, I have a couple of opening questions not on your outline I wanted to ask you, and we'll do a little back and forth with this, a little brainstorming. But what, first question is this, and it's not in your outline, so listen carefully. What is the difference between character and reputation? Now, I guard my reputation. Like I said, it, it drives me batty that I announced that Sunday, then Sunday afternoon that happened, and it's like I'm, I'm a liar before people because of what I said Sunday morning, I lied. I didn't know that at the time. But I'm just saying I like being a person. For those that know me, I like, I like standing by my word. And one of the things I tell people all the time is be a person of your word, you know. And so what's the difference then between character and reputation? Reputation, character is what you are and who you stand for and how you act and behave. Reputation is how the perception of what you as character is, is carried out. Perception by others. And so your character is who you are. Reputation is who others think you are or say you are or how they perceive you. Right? Would you agree? And so character is more inward, personal, whereas reputation is more outward. Correct? Okay, I think we're, we're together on that. Um, character, uh, what it, reputation is uh, what you said what you are said to be, it's the opinion of others, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's what others think of you. Um, it, character uh, on the opposite side is, is who you are internally. It's, it's, it takes years to build your character, whereas reputation can happen in a sh relatively short period of time, having a reputation or a name or whatever. And so one's inward, one's more outward. So here's, here's a question that goes with that one. What do you think is worse? wrongfully having a bad reputation or wrongfully having a good reputation? What is worse and why? Uh, wrongfully having a bad reputation or wrongfully having a good reputation? What do you think? And then why? What do you think is worse? How many would say having a, wrongfully having a bad reputation is worse than wrongfully having a good reputation. Which one? And why? It's better. I think it's better to have a good reputation. And, uh... Wrongfully having a good reputation, though? So when you wrongfully have a good reputation, what? Or a bad? A little play on words. Zane, a little bit. Okay, because that could crumble. So if you're wrong, if you have a... Okay. All right. Somebody else? Oh, I like that. 
Pastor Jim now. We're going to give you that one. <laughs> to me, it's important that, that we as followers of Christ um, have character regardless of reputation because that can be, that can be objective. For it depends on who you ask. That would be Joel. He's the mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we're going to talk about that tonight because in Revelation chapter 3, the church in Sardis, they had a reputation. They were known for something, and yet Jesus comes very hard against them. And so let's read together. Um, we can begin recording kind of like right now. Jill, pick it up here. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. You have a name. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Verse 4, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes or defiled themselves. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we mentioned, uh, you know, Sardis is this church. We are at number five the fifth church of the seven. Uh, so far we've looked at in chapter two, Ephesus, the big successful church, had a lot of things going, commended for a lot of great things, but lacking their, missing their first love. They have forsaken their first love. Smyrna, the rich in spirit church. I know your poverty, yet you are rich. Uh, one of the two of the seven churches, only two, Smyrna and Philadelphia, that, that received no complaint from Christ. Uh, then we had Pergamum, the compromising church, and Thyatira, the tolerant church. Well, now we come to Sardis, and basically what Jesus is trying to do here is call a dead church back to life. And so this is the fifth in the series of seven letters sent by the Lord through the agent of the Apostle John. And I believe that there's one central truth that's kind of ringing loud and true for all of us as we're reading this, as we're going through these letters, is, is simply uh, saying this, and as taken together, we as humans tend to look at the outward appearance of things, but God looks on the heart. 
And it's not, and I've said this over and over again, it's not the things that we say about ourselves that is really the deciding factor. It's what he has to say about us. Even Laodicea, later on in this chapter, you know, you say, I am rich, I am increased with goods, I am in need of nothing, but don't you realize, I'm paraphrasing, Jesus said, you're poor, pitiful, blind, wretched, and naked. You know, it's not what we say, it's what he says. And, and, and so we look, we tend to focus on what others think about us, what our reputation is, how others perceive us, but what really counts is what he has to say. Keep that in mind as we walk through this. Now, we know as we're going through this being the fifth letter of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor, we know now, by now, that God is not impressed with the things that impress us. And keep that in mind as well. And this is true, certainly true when we consider the case of Sardis. Uh, let me walk you through a little background as we, as we uh, open this letter up. Uh, I think so much of what has been said to the church in this letter is a direct reference to what was happening in that city, in that town, because the church, in, the church Sardis in Sardis there has taken on the characteristics of that city. For example, Sardis was a city that was literally built on a hill. It was on a high area that was surrounded by three sides of perpendicular walls, uh, walks about 1,500 feet in height. Uh, the only way to get into town uh, uh, was simply to come from the south up the slope. The city, because of its natural defensive capabilities, really thought they were very secure. They were smugly secure. Matter of fact, in the 6th century before Christ, it was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. Sardis had a king then known for his wealth throughout the world. Uh, Croesus, C-R-O-S-I-S, was his name. And he made war against the Persians, against Cyrus. Well, Cyrus didn't like that, so he came and besieged Sardis. Croesus thought he was secure in Sardis, for the gates were shut on the south side, and he knew that no one's going to climb these, these 1,500 high-feet walls, and it's going to be impossible for an army to come up on these walls surrounding the city, so he thought he was secure. Here's the deal. While they slept at night, sound and secure, one night some daring soldiers of Cyrus scaled the wall and came and slipped into the city, opened the gates, and the army of Cyrus took the city. Croesus awoke in the morning and he was no longer king. Why? Because by stealth at night, the thief had come. Look at verse 3 again. What did Jesus say? He says, But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. That happened in that city. Uh, and so it had happened to Croesus, C-R-O-S-I-S. And that would have, and all that would have been needed to stop really was, you know, the invading army is if one person was on the perch, if you will, you know, first guy's coming up trying to get in, you just roll a boulder on him, and it kind of takes the rest of them out. You've seen the cartoons, you know, and that, that's kind of what's happened. But that would simply wipe everybody else out. Uh, but no one was posted because, once again, they had a false sense of security. Also striking at Sardis is that history repeated itself because four centuries later in the year 218, Sardis had again recouped its political strength and military might. And once more, it was secure in thinking that no one was going to uh, invade them because once again, 
We're surrounded by these walls, impenetrable, whatever. But Antichius, the great, besieged the city with his army. Once again, how did it happen? Again, at night, while the city slept, 400 years later, a daring member of Antichius's army, a mountain climber, took 15 men, scaled the precipice, came over the city walls, undid the city gates, and the army rushed in. And once again, the city was besieged. All right, history repeating itself. And so Sardis, of all the seven cities, was a city that was, most living, that was mostly living in the past. I mean, it thought it had a future, but it did not. It thought it was secure, but it wasn't secure. Its glory belonged to a bygone age. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is writing to this church, and he sees so much in this church that is like what was happened or what had happened in that city that, the, that those who lived there knew the history of what was going on. And so then we come to, on your outline, the four points on most all of these, his character, his commendation, his condemnation, then his counsel. First of all, his character, to the angel, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these are the words of him who does what? Who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. First thing that Jesus does in most of these letters is he reminds who he's writing to of who he is and of his character. And he says, I am he who has the seven spirits of God. We briefly mentioned this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, we talked about when we first started this, seven represents what? Unity completeness, the idea of fullness. The seven spirits means the Holy Spirit in all his fullness. Now, that's one view. The second view that, that could be adapted here is a reference then to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Maybe your Bible has that notation in the center margin with the index or whatever it might be. But, but Isaiah eleven two 2 says this, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so in Isaiah eleven two, the sevenfold spirit of, of, of the Lord is, 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 number one, is the spirit of the Lord. Number two, wisdom. Three, understanding. Four, counsel. Five, power. Six, knowledge. And seven, the fear of the Lord. And so that is another reference to the sevenfold spirit. Thirdly, the sevenfold spirit may also describe the fact that there are seven churches and the same spirit present in each one of them. In other words, he is powerful, he should be powerful in each place. And so the Lord says he holds the sevenfold spirit, the seven spirits in his hand. He also holds the stars in his hand. We're going to get into a very strong rebuke of Jesus to this church. And before we do that, though, keep in mind as well, um, not all is well here in Sardis, but the Lord, as he, as he is, always reaches out, always offers us repentance, always offers us grace and mercy if we'll just do things His way and not our way. And so the end result, even in His rebuke that we're going to look at in a second here, is always that of bringing back into the fold. He's always... He's always reaching out to us. He's always trying to, to help us do what is right before him. And so then we come to his commendation. 
Uh, not one of the problems here in Sardis is that this church seems to stand out uh, perhaps more than all the others uh, because they thought of itself in these grandiose terms. Um, and, and yet we got to be careful when we're talking about the church that we're not making it our own possession. And one of the things I've, I've been cautious of throughout my ministry since I, was, I got saved and called, felt called to ministry is I try to not use personal possessive uh, pronouns describing my relationship to the church. Church, this is not Brian's church. This is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I always say, I did not shed my blood for it. He did. It is blood bought by Christ himself. And so be careful when, when, when using those kind of things. Well, this is Jim's church. This is Jim's church. This, you know, two Jim's here, two Pastor Jim's here. You know, we we got to be careful there. Uh, and so uh, it is the Lord's church because the more I see it as mine, the less it will be his. Okay? And so it's not mine in a sense of possessiveness. Jesus said, I will build my church. It's his church. And so the Lord is getting through to this church saying, look, remember, Sardis, who you are. Remember who you belong to. It is I who holds you. Another thing that caught my attention as I was reading and rereading this this past week is, is so far we've looked at four letters that Jesus wrote to the first four churches in Revelation chapter 2. And, and he finds something in each of these churches that he approves of and says, guys, keep on doing this. You're doing good here. You know, well done. You're doing the right thing. For example, Ephesus, Revelation 2, 2, and 3. I know your deeds, your hard work. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. Uh, you have persevered. You've endured hardships in my name. You have not grown weary. I mean, great commendation to Ephesus. Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Pergamum, uh, you remain true to my name. You did, you did not renounce your faith in me. Uh, you're my, my, you know, uh, so basically, he's saying good things about all these churches. Thyatira, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, and perseverance. Hey, guys, you're doing more now than you did at first. I mean, every church, Jesus, at every turn, is commending them for what was right before telling them what was wrong, correct? We looked at that so far. And at Smyrna, I mean, there was no word of correction, only commendation. I mean, Smyrna and Philadelphia, nothing bad, only good things to say about it. But now we come to Sardis, to the church as a whole, there's no word of approval. Wow. And so it's almost as if Jesus, in writing these letters, has a little shift in his thought and how he presents these letters to the churches. Uh, and he says this, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. Once again, nothing gets beyond him. He knows all. You have, here it is, you have a name or a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And he says very emphatically, Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. And then he says, obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. A thief is a good thief when they come unannounced. 
A thief would be considered a bad thief if they were to say on Facebook, say, hey, Dave, I'm coming to your house tonight. I'm going to rob you blind. You know, I'm, I'm going to take everything as yours. No, that's a bad thief. A thief comes under stealth, if you will. And so it's striking that a church, at least looking at it from the outside, looked like it was a good church. You have a name. You have a reputation from others, from those on the outside, of being alive. And yet the Lord doesn't find anything in Sardis where he approves it. The only thing that remotely looks like a commendation is found in verse 4. You have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled or soiled their clothes. That's the only commendation if you would give, give, the right, if you'd give Christ that, you know, that little bit there a reference to the fact that there are some in the church who have not partaken in the world's sins. Next week, Lord willing, I'm going to talk more about that part of it and then deal with worldliness and sinfulness and, and really you know, spiritually sleeping people. I'm going to deal with that more next week. But really what, marked, what a marked contrast to the other churches we have looked at where the correction was being addressed to the minority in the church which would be walking away from the Lord, but now a majority at, at Sardis, it wasn't a minority, it was a majority of the church as a whole that weren't following Christ. Before, one through four, churches one through four were talked about, just a minority was, was needed correction, needed, needed counsel, needed reproof. But here in Sardis, the majority, you have a few, so the majority had fallen away in Sardis. There's only a few the Lord can commend. Uh, and so let's look then at his commendation, or his condemnation, excuse me. I know your works, you have a name, a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And so really Sardis was a church whose reality didn't match its reputation. I've said from the very beginning that what matters the most is not what we say, it's what he says what the Lord says. And so Sardis had this reputation for being a happening church. I mean, perhaps it was numerically strong. Maybe it was financially strong. Maybe it was doing great things for other people. You know, the works, whatever. I know your, I know your deeds. But the Lord is examining this church on the basis of its relationship to himself personally when he's saying to them, in my sight, you're dead. Wow. Friends, None of us wants the Lord to say that of us, right? Yeah. And yet the Lord is saying this to his church. Yeah. So here's Sardis, an organized church, yet lacking life in God's presence. Here is the church operating without the power of the Holy Spirit. It is scary to me to even think that that would go on today, but yet it goes on all over the world. It's possible for a church to go on for a period of time and to exist on the momentum of a succeeding generation or of a past generation and keep all the lines of motion intact. One of my, I remember David Ravenhill saying this, a quote from his father when he was here years ago, one of the most dangerous things that can happen in any given church is to preach God's word without the anointing of the Holy Ghost. True, true. And so Revelation 3.1, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, permit me tonight, the next few minutes, um, I'm going to 
uh, ad-lib a little bit. I don't want to add or take away from God's Word, but just kind of follow me. You'll, you'll know where I'm going once I say what I say. Uh, Sardis's fame was well-known throughout the area. This was the church to attend. I mean, they had the fog machines going if they had fog machines back then. The lights were turned down low. The worship leader was wearing skinny jeans and had a man bun. The pastor had a weekly blog published on papyrus that was handed out to everyone on the streets. Maybe their parking lot was full every Sunday, and they had to hire the local, the local police, if you will, to direct the camel and horse traffic uh, after service. We don't know for sure. Maybe the community reporter uh, could, could give you directions to the church. I mean, the church at Sardis was popular. It was well attended. Quite likely, the angel or the pastor of the church, the central bright light, knew how to draw the crowds. I mean, he became well-liked and well-known in the community. He probably hosted a weekly television program as well as producing the yearly passion play, not to mention the popular singing Christmas tree. Because of his vision, the church gained its reputation as being a church that was on fire, a church that was alive. I mean, things were happening at that church. The highlight of the week, of course, was the Sunday morning service. Unless you came early, you might have difficulty finding a seat. Unlike other churches in the area, this church prided itself on its contemporary style of worship, which included short dramas followed by a short, well-illustrated message built around some current event. The angel had surrounded himself with some of the brightest and best-educated men he could find. There were probably classes for almost every need, from eating disorders to weight loss programs, children, youth, and adult programs. I mean, the singles group, ladies, listen to me back there, the singles group was a midweek crown jewel of the week. I mean, here singles of all ages met to fellowship, to feast, to discuss how to break free from their past problems and get on the road to recovery. This was a dynamic, happening, alive church. So they thought. Now you know how I ad-libbed there, okay? All right. And yet, here was one, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, who held a totally different opinion of what they thought of themselves. The verdict that Jesus, the Lord of the church, rendered over the church at Sardis is you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. In other words, he is saying to this church, follow me, you are known for this, but I see the real you. What was wrong deep in the spirit of the believers at Sardis? Friends, we should examine this letter with great care because even the church in Thyatira, the tolerant church, fared better than Sardis. To begin with, as I already mentioned, Sardis is the only church that did not receive some commendation. Not one word at the outset, which would be an alarming signal saying, hey, something's wrong here. Jesus immediately moves into condemning her for her lack of completed deeds. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. I mean, how could such a popular happening church fall so short of meeting the master's approval? That's why it's necessary for every pastor for every Christian, for every spiritual leader to inquire exactly 
what was it that Jesus was looking for? I mean, how do we determine what was wrong with this church without injecting our own opinions and bias into the answer? Fortunately, we have the Spirit's opinion to give us the objective and the holy view of the things we need in order to correct ourselves. The first thing we need is a Spirit's eye view of the church. You see, when Jesus Christ looks upon His church, He is looking for the signs that it is, in fact, still His body. That His church is carrying out what He had commanded. That His church is doing the works that He wants that church to do since it is physically present here on earth to represent Him and to be salt and light where He's placed that church. And so to Christ then, the church really is a spiritual organism. There's a basic truth of life that cannot be denied here. The life of the body is derived from its head. In order for a congregation to be a part of the true church and not just an organization made up of talented Christians, it must be connected to the true head who is Christ himself. In other words, we must abide in him, John 15, if we're going to produce the fruit that he wants us to produce. Just side note, read John 15. I mean, merely being led by a pastor and a deacon board, however gifted, however knowledgeable or dedicated these people might be, is not enough. The church at all levels must be connected by the Spirit to Christ or it will not have the life of Christ flowing into it. We must be remaining or abiding in Him, connected to Him. We have life, it's inevitable. For Jesus says, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. A dead church is one who has lost its life or perhaps never had this vital connection to Christ by the Spirit to begin with. I, I like this quote, and I've used this before from Leonard Ravenhill. He says, speaking of the early church, the church began in the upper room with a bunch of men agonizing in prayer. Today, and I'm paraphrasing his quote, but today we have regulated to the supper room with a bunch of people organizing. First church, upper room, agonizing. Nowadays, supper room, organizing. The one job of the church of Jesus Christ is to bring life where there is death. But I ask, how can a church truly represent Christ when it's dead, but it thinks it's alive? The church in Sardis was superficial, not supernatural. It was busy, but it was spiritually barren. In the case of Sardis, the ministry and the operation of the Spirit was missing. And that was a problem. I mean, there's all kinds of activity going on everywhere. Programs abounded. But it was all done by human effort and natural ability. The church was a dynamo of activity, but severed from its head, its, spiritual, its, its, its spirituality never and endings were dead. Without this vital connection, it was not being led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, as I tried to ponder what this death was, I could think... I, th I think I could describe it as following. This church, when they gathered together for worship, well, they sang songs, but their songs were contained within the building. They never reached the heart of God. When you're here worshiping, you have an audience of one. And it's not Pastor Jim, it's not myself. It's Jesus, it's God Almighty. The songs which they sang were courses on a screen, 
but they weren't from the person's heart. It was worship in terms of performance instead of worship toward God. They were just going through the motions. Oh, they had form, but very little passion. When they prayed, their prayers were prayers of duty and prayers of beauty. I mean, just going through the motion. Maybe flowery, wordy prayers or whatever, but they weren't prayers that touched the heart of God. I think the church today, by and large, and I say this more, more for the Western church than anything, I think this church today, at large, has lost our sense of need for him. We've lost our sense of need. You see, when, when this church was serving, it was from the standpoint of, well, this is what we ought to do. I mean, this is what, you know, the social, the social action we should take or whatever, and we should be doing this, and, and, and yet was it being done unto him? It was as though, in the language of the Old Testament, all the worship of this church was done in the outer courts but never reached the Holy of Holies. Nothing reached the inner place. Nothing reached the heart of God. And so the Lord is basically sternly saying to this church and rebuke, hey, guys, everybody thinks you're alive, but I know the true you and you're dead. And it's time to wake up. Alive toward people perhaps, but dead toward God. Alive toward knowing everybody else's business, but dead toward knowing God's business. I wonder how many families and how many marriages and how many persons are in the church and oh, they got a good reputation, maybe from even others outside of the church, maybe at the job or maybe at school or whatever, maybe in, the, maybe in the community. I mean, everything looks good on the outside. I mean, you're a model of piety, the model of success, the model of spirituality. And yet, if you would look at your in, interior life, you realize, you know, there's not much of substance that, that God sees there. This is what was going on in Sardis. The interior had become inferior. The relationship of prayer is gone. Uh, the idea of family being together in terms of worship is absent. I mean, your life has become a, a front. I mean, it's, just, it's become false. It's become, it's become fake. You have a name. You have a reputation of being alive. But in the eternal, internal area of your life, there is spiritual deadness. And I thought, man, what a convicting word of Jesus Christ to the church that the church today doesn't want to hear. Because has today relations, reputation replaced relationship. We want others to think we're spiritual. And yet he knows. He knows our hearts. On the outside all looks well, but on the inside we are spiritually bankrupt, dead man's bones. Jesus not only tells them that, but he tells them that their performance does not match their intentions. Your deeds are not complete in my sight. In other words, nothing you do has been brought to completion. Uh, take what you have which is existing and now get to work, he says, completing it. Now, how does that all affect us then? Let me just kind of, in closing tonight, as I begin to wind this down in the next 10 minutes, um, point out one of the great dangers we each face in studying these letters. See, it's easy to read about spiritual deadness. It's easy to uh, note the lack of connection to Christ by the Spirit and say, yeah, the church I attend is dead too. Matter of fact, my pastor is obviously not connected to the Holy Ghost. It's no wonder BCF is so lifeless. It's no wonder there are empty pews in that church. It's no wonder the church isn't full. Or if you're a leader, it's easy to think these people are as dead as doornails. The problem, of course, is always with somebody else, isn't it? 
is vitally important that we consider this problem as individual members of the body of Christ. And so the question is not, how would Jesus classify my church? How would Jesus classify my pastor or my congregation? How would he classify that? That's not the question. The correct question is, how would Jesus classify me? If Jesus were writing me a letter, not Brian, pastor, a baseline, just Brian, the one that's been deleted from Facebook twice now, B.J. Hartman or Brian Hartman. How would Jesus classify me as dead to him or alive to him? See, that's a convicting question because we can put on the front saying, look how spiritual I am. I got it all together when in reality we don't. Once again, it's not what I say, it's what he says. How easy it is for every one of us to lapse into the living the Christian life through our own resources rather than staying in contact with Christ, our divine head. How easy to live out of our own strengths rather than in daily dependence upon the Spirit of God. I mean, Jesus says when, when you're praying, you know, pray in this manner. Give us this day our daily bread. And yet we've replaced that today with give us a good message today through our pastor and that will sustain me all week long. No, what about you getting in the word every day of the week? What about you spending time in his presence? What about you saying, God, I am thirsty, I am hungry, I need more? See, the Christian community seeks to live off, even today, one or two meetings a week. And there is no longer that daily visit to the outflowing river of his presence. As Jeremiah has stated, we have hewn for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Today, the sad reality is we tend to derive our life from television, from sports, from material goods and the like. We, yeah, we send our kids to Christian schools. We listen to Christian music. We hang out with like-minded Christians. We attend our local church. But deep within us, do we have that real hunger for more of Jesus that says, Jesus, you need to increase, I need to decrease. No desire to meditate on God's word, spending time in the presence of the master. No real desire to see the lost of our community saved. No, I, I put this in my notes and I'll say it. I know it's Wednesday night and you're here and you wonder where everybody else is at, but if we were truly hungry for God, and for more of him, may I submit to you tonight that the monthly prayer meeting would be just as full that on Sunday nights as the service is on Sunday morning. Again, quoting Leonard Ravenhill, the reason we don't have revival is because we are willing to live without it. Cutting, but true. We become content with our own lives and comfortable living like we are. And like the believers in Sardis, oh, we might have the appearance of being spiritual. Everything's together. We're the happening church. But God sees the facade. God knows that the empowering life of his spirit is not in us. And all of our works have become dead. And so ask yourself tonight as I wind this down. We'll have a couple questions at the end. But how would Jesus classify you tonight if he were writing you a letter Let's make it modern. If he were texting you tonight, what would he text you? What would he write you? 
Are you alive to him? Or are you dead, but yet you think you're alive? What would he say about you? Because, once again, I have read and reread chapter 3, 1 through 6 in the last week, preparing for tonight. And what the main thing that stands out to me, honestly, is this. In any given congregation, in any given congregation, there are those who think they're right with God, but in reality are not right with God. And Jesus is saying, judgment's coming. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Strengthen. Repent. Obey. Things we don't hear a lot about today in the church. But things in the hour that we're living in, we better start hearing. And, and pastors better be preaching. Amen? He's not trying to be hard in this church. Matter of fact, it's his loving kindness and his grace that he approaches them and calls them to repentance. It's his grace that says, guys, things aren't as they are, as, as they seem to you, as they seem to the community. But make sure you're right with God because there's coming a day when the master thief, Jesus, is going to come by stealth, by surprise. He's not going to announce his coming. And if you don't get things turned around, it's going to be too late. It's interesting that he calls his church repentance. We'll pick this up more next week. So just kind of highlighting here his character. He holds the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, his commendation, really no word of, of approval to the church as a whole. Uh, maybe a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They're sinning, worldliness. We'll address that next week. His condemnation you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Incomplete works. They've forgotten what they received, verse 3. They were disobedient, verse 3. They were defiled, soiled. We'll talk more about that next week. And then his counsel, wake up, strengthen what remains, complete your works, repent, obey, overcome. Friends, let us all, verse 6, have ears to hear what Holy Spirit would say the church. As a pastor, I can't tell you how many times the thought of in a given congregation that I'm, that I'm pastoring, who's right with God, who's not? And it drives me batty when I know someone's not right with God and aren't prepared for eternity. It keeps me up at times. It keeps me on my knees if I had good knees to keep me going, you know. Uh, figuratively speaking, but praying because if I had a word from the Lord for the church today, it would be make sure you keep your heart set on Jesus, period, because everything flows from that. Now, that all being said, I have a bunch of questions here. How can a church appear to be alive and thriving, and yet be dead? How can a church appear to be alive and thriving, and yet be dead? But let me not point fingers, forgive me, Lord. What about my heart, God? Each of you, what about my heart, God? Take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. Right. Anyone else?
How can a church to be appear, appear to be alive and thriving and yet be dead? Yeah, the people are dead. But they're also deceived, thinking that everything is okay. I talk to people a lot that believe everything between them and God's all right. When you know by their life, their deeds, things are not well. And so that does happen, all right? Um, we'll pick this up next week, continue on a little bit more on this idea of spiritual sleeping. The Bible says a lot about spiritual sleep, and we'll talk about that. And then really, um, what does it mean to uh, have our, our soil our clothes? And it's not talking about getting them dirty and, and like you soil a diaper or whatever. It's, you know, defiling uh, your, your spirit man. We'll talk about more of that next week as well. But... Uh, um, I got one, two minutes left. My last question. What advice would you give a young Christian who asked, how can I keep from sinning? How can I keep from sinning? I have one answer. I'll let you answer first. Read the word. Reading the Bible won't keep you from, keep from sinning, though. How can a young man keep, keep his way pure? Psalm 119. There, you need to obey God's word. My answer, I'll close with this. How can, you, how, can a, how can a person keep from sinning? The fear of the Lord will keep you from sinning. Goes back to what I started preaching in January of this year. I preached one or two Sundays on the fear of God because the church doesn't understand the fear of God. If they did, we wouldn't be so free and open to sin and live in sin like we're doing. The fear of the Lord will keep you from sinning. How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 119 says, by living according to your word. By obeying. Obedience. He calls them to obedience. More about that next week as well. I have enough. I've said enough. God bless you all. Have a good night. Uh, the question is yours, though. Would Jesus classify you tonight as? Ask him in prayer. You ask him. Lord, am I dead to you? Or am I alive to you? If I'm dead, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Wash me. And help me, as he's trying to help the church in Sardis, to be prepared for come what may. I said enough. Bless you all.